Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Welcome to our latest episode, which is a dedicated look at the cover feature topic for this week's Autosport magazine, and that is the Ferrari Formula One team's quest to recover from its nightmare 2020 season. This time 12 months ago, Ferrari was preparing to leave for the soon-to-be-abandoned Australian Grand Prix under a considerable cloud. Its FS1000 car had what the team called an extreme aerodynamic design to try and increase the number of places where its package was competitive, but when winter testing got underway, it was quickly evident that there was something seriously wrong. The Ferrari-powered cars languished in the speed trap classification at Barcelona, and in the final minutes of pre-season testing it became clear why. The FIA communicated its famous settlement agreement with Ferrari regarding its controversial 2019 power unit, which had helped it beat Mercedes at a string of races the previous summer and early autumn. But in 2020, Ferrari suddenly lacked power and its new aero philosophy created large amounts of drag. So even when the delayed 2020 season finally got underway, Ferrari knew it was in for a tough campaign, and so it proved to be. Although Charles Leclerc took two shock podiums early on and Sebastian Vettel added another in the wet weather chaos at the Turkish Grand Prix, the team slumped to sixth in the Constructors' Championship by the end of the year, its worst result in 40 years after it finished 10th in 1980. Ahead of the 2021 season, Ferrari has held its team launch, introducing new hire Carlos Sainz Jr. who replaces Sebastian Vettel and its new SF21 machine will be unveiled later this week. So to discuss how Ferrari hopes to do better with that car in 2021, what challenges it still faces, and also have a look back at some of the best cars the team has produced in Formula 1, I'm joined by two special guests, Autosport's Chief Editor Kevin Turner and our F1 reporter Luke Smith. And Luke, I want to start with you, if I may, and take you back. I think it's over 12 months now since we were uh, sat in Barcelona. I can remember, um, obviously, it was my first uh, uh, F1 testing experience as, uh, as, as Autosports Grand Prix editor, you know, moving into a new job, all very exciting. I seem to remember we had to get up at the absolute crack of dawn for the hmm. first day in order to get yes. some desks. Uh, definitely, we, like, we arrived in darkness. It was, it was freezing cold. I was driving a lovely Mercedes hire car that I think was probably the best one we had all year. I probably shouldn't tell Kev that, that we got in. Yeah, I remember rocking up and being like, oh, is this what? Because it was my first uh, event with Autosport and you guys have these lovely hire cars. I thought, wow, doing rather well for themselves here. Yeah, it didn't stay like that. There are some no. few um, absolute, uh, <laughs> absolute uh, uh, specimens that we encountered throughout the rest of the year. Although the one we got, the Nürburgring, that was also very good. Anyway, sorry, totally digressing. Um, but because it's important to go back to that point, because that was when it quickly became apparent that we come into the season, you know, the, the, the test thinking, right, how is Ferrari going to do better? Because all the talk in, in 2019 testing was Ferrari wins the testing war rocks up at Melbourne, Mercedes comfortably beats it, and it's like, ah, oh, they weren't quite as good as they thought they were, or actually, as it actually happens, Mercedes improved a lot. 
And then when the SF one thousand was on track and the and the and the customer teams as well, they were just nowhere in, in the straight line speed. It was like that's really strange. What's going on? Obviously it's testing, so you know, it was still able to put in what looked like competitive lap times, but it was evident very early on that something was going wrong. So, you know, how do you remember that playing out? What, what was the sort of, did we, did we really get a sense of panic from Ferrari? What was the feeling from the team at the time? Yeah, I think there was definitely some, we could see some signs of what was about to come and the season that would follow. And Ferrari has been, as you said, the, the year before it won the testing war. And I think ever since we had the, the regulation change in 2017, it has always performed really, really strongly in pre-season testing and really hyped things up going into the new season and the idea of ending this long wait for a championship. But last year was, I think, the first time it was like, well, okay, that's absolutely not the case here. Like, there is something really up. And uh, Charles Leclerc, obviously, he was riding high after such a good first year with Ferrari in 2019. So he he wasn't as uh, maybe as outspoken about what was going on through testing. But it was it was Sebastian Vettel who I think really really summed it up. And I remember him saying that the car is is too draggy and not quick enough in a straight line. And that's kind of the the worst of both worlds, really. And uh, uh, yeah, I remember it was sort of when uh, I remember you going through sort of all the, the straight line speed numbers and it was, as you say, quickly clear that there was quite a big deficit between what Ferrari were doing and what the other teams were posting. And I think, yeah, it was all kind of just starting to, uh, I think the cracks were just starting to emerge really. And it was um, obviously it was quite a fraught period in terms of we were just sort of thinking like, oh, this this COVID thing, like how might that affect Formula One before obviously we could have even predicted what toll the pandemic would have on the whole world and, and the 2020 season. But it was, uh, yeah, I think it was definitely one of the stories of testing that Mercedes were coming away looking like by and far the quickest team. They'd debuted DAS and it was just all all good. Like everything from Mercedes was spick and span and perfect. And Ferrari, the team that was meant to strike back and, and be able to take the fight in 2020, was absolutely nowhere. And then on the uh, literally, what, 10 minutes before the end of testing on the, on the final Friday, I think it was, they um, the FIA issued the statement about the private settlement. And it was just it just became clear that there was a real flux going around Ferrari and things were not looking good. And uh, that really set the tone for the season that followed. And yeah, I think it was just a very, it was a very telling period that after so many years of sort of being really strong and being the competitive for Mercedes, that they came back down to earth with a serious, serious bump that would ultimately foreshadow the uh, terrible season that would follow for them. Indeed. And it was interesting, obviously, we came home between the two tests last year. And I remember writing, you know, obviously for, for the two two week period that covered, there were two issues of Autosport magazine. And I can remember writing my report of the first test and it was like, well, are Ferrari sandbagging? Are they hiding something? Are they going to turn up at the next test and suddenly be remarkably better? And what was interesting was that there were a couple of occasions where they were suddenly right up there in the speed trap classifications. But all the other teams could see on their GPS data that it, that it just wasn't accurate. Like they, that, that it was clear there was a massive power problem that Ferrari was suffering. So, you know, then, then it all did make sense with the engine settlement, as you say, Luke. Um, but Kev, you and I have chatted about, you know, chatted off air, probably uh, rather more um, forthrightly than we might be on this podcast, but about just how Ferrari, I mean, I mean effectively shot itself in the foot twice. I mean, that, that's exactly how forthright I was when we had, had a chat about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, in that not only did it harm its own performance by having its engine settled, or, you know, whatever whatever went on there um, for 2020, but it made Mercedes even better. It, it, it's, it, its performance in 2019 alarmed Mercedes so much that they were like, right, we, we have to give it everything. Every little go back, revisit every project we've ever thought could add some pace to our car. Let's see if we can do it. And that's what they did. That's how DAS ended up on the car, the rear suspension layout, things like that. So it was quite a, a double self-harming move that Ferrari ended up making. Yeah, it was. I think um, I think it's probably worth um, doing. A, my little defence of Ferrari is I think it shows you just how strong Mercedes is and how tough a nut to crack they are. Because Ferrari obviously took a bit of a risk with the 2019 power plant. They must have known that at best it was open to interpretation <laughs> what they were what they were doing. They thought they've got to just do everything they can possible. And let's remember they they actually could have won the championship in 2018. Uh, I think the difference there was the was the drivers. Basically, Hamilton didn't make the mistakes that Vettel made and pulled a couple of wins out of the bag. 
Um, and in 2019, obviously Mercedes had that fantastic start to the season while Ferrari and Red Bull had tripped over themselves. But actually, there were points in the year where Mercedes were on the back foot. So yeah, as you say, um, that spurred Mercedes into throwing the kitchen sink at the at the 2020 car, which you have to say was pretty successful and quite impressive. Uh, and that obviously gave Red Bull a problem because they actually were sort of edging back into the fight and then Mercedes stepped away from them again. And at the, at the same time, you say Ferrari stepped backwards because they then, you know, they they correctly, I think, realised that what they were lacking compared to Mercedes was, was downforce. So it's like, right, we've got this powerful engine, let's crank up the downforce a bit so we can match them in the corners. It's actually an old turbo trick when they're really, t- in the 80s, uh, you could put barn door rear wings on when you had the most powerful engine. And then they didn't have the most powerful engine. They had the least power, most powerful. So least most powerful? That's not a thing. Least powerful engine. Um, so, yeah, they were they were stuffed. But, yeah, I think it's it's probably worth pointing out that, that uh, despite all those problems, they could still have finished fourth in the Constructors' Championship if they'd had two drivers performing at Charles Leclerc's level. So, yeah, I, I, I suspect there will be quite a, a, quite a decent recovery this year. But I'm sure we'll get onto that in a minute. Yeah, well, let, let's go. Let's go on to the drivers and the, and the situation last year. Although, just very quickly, I never thought I'd hear you coming to Ferrari's defence on this podcast. But um, but you know, very very balanced, <laughs> very very measured, and, and an excellent points maker. Well, only in the sense of just, I think it's easy to forget just how good the current Mercedes team is. I'm pretty convinced that it is the finest Formula One team in, you know of all time, which will surely not be a popular suggestion. But I just think the the level they've been at for the length of time they've been at is truly remarkable. But that's the problem with the modern world. You say it's not a popular thing to say. It's just because of the polarisation that social media brings. It's like, how dare you acknowledge what is clearly an obviously brilliant team? You're very biased, even though all the evidence supports that exact statement. But there we go. Um, yeah, look, let, let, let's chat about um, the drivers last year and then come on to, 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 to contrast that with the potential of the new lineup. Um with uh, as Kev said, um, had Sebastian Vettel matched Charles Leclerc's points total of ninety-eight, if you, it's rather crudely, you know, quite rather crude way of calculating it, but say they they been able to bring home exactly the same amount of points, that would have put Ferrari fourth, um, even ahead of Racing Point um, in the constructors' championship, and that obviously, you know, if you wanted to dig down into that, you could say, yeah, probably the teams would be further behind because Ferrari would have been picking up those points, but just just you know, just a basic, you know, they would have done better. Let's put it that way. So. What was it that Leclerc was able to do that Vettel wasn't? He was just that much more comfortable right the way throughout the year. It was incredible. And I think that the way, I mean, Sebastian Vettel, obviously we know his departure from the team. That was very protracted. And that happening before the start of the season uh, delayed, obviously, in Austria, that really did put a cloud over the whole year. And Vettel, in his first Aston Martin media engagements uh, yesterday, he was sort of asked a little bit about last year and asked about sort of not feeling happy towards the end of the year. And he said, well, that was really the case throughout the year because ultimately he was racing for a team that didn't want him. So it's very, very difficult. But even that aside, I think that drivers obviously they do have to deal with all of these sort of pressures and in terms of, uh, I guess, off track worries as that would be. But on track, they still are expected to perform. And I, I didn't actually realise that that point stat until, Alex, you put it to Matteo Bonotto um, in the Ferrari launch because it's, it's really quite telling. But no, I mean, Leclerc all season long, I mean, he just was, he, he just had, he was just comfortable. Like He was able to extract the actual maximum out of that car. He was regularly qualifying in Q3, regularly up there fighting um, for, the, for the points and, and sort of and decent, decent hauls. And to, to come away with, with two podiums, I think was really... An, an incredible uh, achievement by him and I th- thought he was yeah one of the standout performers throughout last year and Sebastian Vettel just was he just looked he just looked lifeless at points really he was really really weak and the the string of uh, Q2 exits when that started it was like oh he's having a bit of a rough patch here but it just continued and continued and continued and it was it was absolutely crazy and there were, there were points when Vettel was I remember the, the Spanish Grand Prix which was probably one of his better drives actually and he had to talk Ferrari out of a two-stop strategy and stick on a one-stop because he had track position and that was the only way he could score any points because he wasn't quick enough to be able to fight with the cars around him to, to overtake them and to overhaul them and it was it was just really a bit sad to watch really because for a four-time world champion you expect so much better and we know what Sebastian Vettel can do that, that's the thing and he um, he just didn't have there was no fight from him really last year it was all just a bit disappointing and I think uh, yeah Turkey aside which was uh, I think a really a nice thing that Vettel got he got one final podium with Ferrari but 
of and weird that of all the races it's probably the one with the trickiest conditions and where it's easiest to make mistakes that Vettel actually performed and seemed to turn up but uh, yeah for the most part he was just very anonymous throughout the year whereas Leclerc I think just spoke to the the star that he is the fact is that he's had sort of this rise and rise and the rise one GP3 one Formula 2 great first season with Sauber great first season with Ferrari and finally hit a down note but he was still able to turn that into positive he was still able to perform and produce a really great season so yeah I think it was um, I don't think it was telling of the true performance gap between the two of them I think if you just take the drivers on face value because I think Sebastian Vettel is fantastic and deserving of all his titles and success but uh yeah last year it was just it was it was a bit, a bit sad to watch at points i found i think we've seen this before with vettel though in that when he's when things aren't going right it doesn't feel i think he's kind of like a good a good mood driver if you like like mm-hmm. when he's got the momentum he can be amazing but when things are against him or he's not he, he, you know he's not feeling the love so to speak you know we saw it in 2014 he didn't like the new Red Bull Daniel Ricciardo came in and nailed him and Vettel kind of his head dropped and didn't really do anything that year 2016 he was expecting the Ferrari after a good first season Ferrari was expecting to step up and challenge Mercedes the car wasn't good enough and he went oh, I can't really be bothered and he was quite recalcitrant the way he, the, the, he drove in that, that season sometimes and then last year you know, having been sort of done over by Leclerc you know it was again a yeah we weren't getting the maximum out of him uh, or Ferrari weren't Whereas when you've got, uh, you know, with Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso, obviously the other two big sort of title winners of this century for like post Schumacher, Marcus Schumacher, um, then, you know, you get the radio message of, I can't believe you've left me on these tyres or this is a rubbish GP2 engine, but they're still dragging the absolute maximum out of the car and normally beating their teammates. And that's the difference. Vettel seems to lose the edge of his pace when he's not happy. So hopefully that will return Aston Martin. Luke, you're writing that feature for this week's issue, um, but yeah, let, let's uh, let's chat about the the big difference um, this season in terms of the drivers, Carlos Sainz Jr. coming in in place of Sebastian Vettel. And yeah, Luke, you know, I did ask Nutter about you know how 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 are they going to basically try and get two cars balanced because in terms of the the percentage difference between the two drivers across the grid, um, Ferrari had the biggest. I think the lowest, uh, Vettel only scored about thirty three percent of um, of Vettel's points, and it's, it's it's massively different. And actually, the the, the smallest gap was uh, was at McLaren where Carlos Sainz and Lando Norris uh, were very very closely matched. Sainz just edging that. Um, yeah, I thought Bonotto gave a very diplomatic uh, diplomatic answer. It was just, you know, yeah, we've just got to make sure they both work together. But there was sort of a clear undertone of they've got to just focus on getting the team and the car better. There can't be any sort of 2019, you know, battle for supremacy and things like that. And, you know, on the face of it, you don't expect Carlos Sainz Jr. To, to come in and try and rest away what is very much Leclerc's team. But... He's a highly rated, highly motivated driver. He's going to do the best that he can and it will be interesting to see what happens. But, you know, as we're going to come on to talk about how the team thinks it is going to perform better in 2021, it probably isn't going to be fighting for the World Championship. So that automatically makes things a little bit easier in terms of driver tensions because we, we saw that last year. Like Leclerc was running a Vettel helmet tri- tribute livery in Abu Dhabi. I can remember watching <laughs> trackside and I was like, why is Vettel in Leclerc's car? What is oh okay right now he's just it's that it's that helmet livery it was like the first time I saw it come round I was like that's that can't be right um, but yeah so science science junior um, Luke how 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 good can he be for Ferrari I mean he's got his dream move it's 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 a move that so many Formula One drivers want to make by coming to Ferrari yeah is it is it is it something that that he'll be able to thrive in what what do we expect from him this year. Yeah, I think it will be. And I think that, as you say, the fact that they won't be fighting for a championship this year, that does remove so much pressure. And Ferrari are very much in their sort of rebuilding phase, which is something that I don't think any incoming drivers uh, have sort of really found themselves in at Ferrari um, in, in the past five or six years. I mean, you think when sort of Kimi Raikkonen arrived, he was expected to perform. Uh, same with Fernando Alonso, same with Sebastian Vettel. So it's uh, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, interesting arrival in that there's sort of, there's not that same level of pressure. And Ferrari have made very clear that the focus is on 2022. Uh, Mattia Bonotto has said they're not going to waste too much time developing this year's car because they want to be ready for the rule change next year. And I think that gives science basically a, a free 
year to get up to speed. And science has spoken about the importance of multi-year deals. It's something he never had with Red Bull. It's something he never had uh, with Renault either when he signed there. But when he got to McLaren, it was a two-year deal. So he, he thought, right, there's no pressure of, okay, this could be my last race. Or if I make a bad mistake, I'm going to be binned off or anything like that. And he flourished. And he said that just took so much pressure off his shoulders. And I think to come into Ferrari, which is, I think, the ultimate high-pressure environment in Formula 1 and have that same kind of thing where it's a two-year deal and Ferrari know this year they're not going to win races. They might snare a few podiums, but they're not going to be fighting for a championship. I think that takes off so much pressure, which is great. And Bonotto spoke uh, about the challenge that science faces getting up to speed. Obviously, we've got reduced testing this year, so he's only going to get one and a half days in the SF21 car before the new season. And uh, I think all drivers, when they adjust to a new team, it's, it is difficult. I remember when Leclerc joined and Bonotto, I think, said and, and probably it came to bite him in the end that uh, Vettel will be given the sort of precedence towards the beginning of the season because it'll take time for Leclerc to get up to, get up to speed. And then Charles nearly went and won his second race for the team. So it's uh, I don't think it's the same kind of thing. And uh, yeah, they made very clear that Bonotto said they want to get Ferrari to the front first then they can talk about, okay, who gets precedence in terms of drivers and how do we deal with rules of engagement and things like that. But there's going to be none of that this year, I don't think. And I don't think there'll be a need to either. I think that, yeah, Science, he's a, he's a competitive guy and he's said, look, I want to I want to win. I want to succeed as much as I can with Ferrari. But he will be under no illusions that, yeah, he's very much walking into a team that is focusing on Leclerc and centering on Leclerc. I think for him, though, it'll be a question of how he can contribute to that dynamic and I guess sort of work with the team whereas with Vettel it was very much a case of he sort of saw the team gravitating away from him and that would have made him be like oh no I've got to do something to pull them back or I'm not really comfortable with this Science knows what he's going into he knows how the land uh, lies and um, I think that yeah, I think that'll put him in good stead. I think he's got the right time now to sort of get comfortable with Ferrari, know how the situation is. And then as of 2022, that's when I think he can really hit the ground running and think, OK, how can I finally win a Grand Prix and uh, perhaps contribute to a, a title challenge? Um, Kev, do you think that this is Ferrari's strongest driver lineup since 2008 early 2009 when it was Kimi Raikkonen and Felipe Massa who you know I, I, I when, when I was uh, growing up I really rated Felipe Massa considering what he did in 2008 but it's just he's very sad obviously just, you know since his, his terrible accident at the Hungara ring just wasn't the same driver and you know he, he wouldn't admit that but the, I think that everything that we saw subsequently when he went up against Fernando Alonso backed that up um, and then he came into Formula E when I was a correspondent there and it was all a bit embarrassing at times um although fair play for having a go in a very different a very difficult championship so yeah what how how where do you see the science leclerc lineup in terms of ferrari's uh, historical uh, driver driver pairings i would definitely agree that i think it's the best one since then i'd even suggest that it has the potential to be better than that um i mean felipe massa was particularly good in in 2008 um, and the Chinese Grand Prix in 2009, I always, I always point that out. He was doing very well in the, in the rain when Lewis Hamilton was spinning his McLaren. I think that happened. Anyway, yeah, Mass is an interesting one. That's a whole. That's a, that's a as you would say, that's a podcast in itself. But I would say it's definitely as good as that one. Potentially better. Just trying to go back a bit further. Um, I mean, obviously the Marcus Schumacher Rubens Barrichello partnership was pretty successful. You'd have to say. Um, yeah, no, I think it's you know, um, I think Alonso was absolutely mega for them. Massa, as you say, was past his best, and Kimi Raikkonen really never delivered at Ferrari in his second stint with them. Uh, and obviously, just as they they kind of uh, got Leclerc on board, Vettel then sort of forgot how to be a front-running Formula One driver. So I think, yeah, I think that this year should should be really good. I write I rate science a lot. Um, you know, we said on the the podcast we do with Karun Chandok that it's really intriguing dynamic there. We know that Leclerc is you know a star driver. Um, how, how close can science get to him? I think it's really, you know, really quite exciting. So, yeah, fair play to Ferrari. A few years ago, I was quite consistently, and 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 we, uh, as a publication, were quite consistently criticising Ferrari's very conservative approach to drivers. But I think you could make a case for it being the strongest, certainly potentially the strongest lineup on the grid this year. Absolutely, absolutely. I think um, just it's just worth acknowledging that um, as good as Leclerc's 2020 season was, and I think it was phenomenal. I think you know we rated him really highly in our in our driver rankings at the end of the year. There were a couple, there were at least a few occasions where he made some some pretty big errors. It was interesting, you know, seeing him 
as Luke said, for the first time in, in so long, finally encounter some sort of, a sort of a dip in terms of his ascendancy in, in Formula One and in his career. Like obviously, there was the the the, the shockingly embarrassing. Uh, taking out of Vettel at the start of the Styrian Grand Prix. I mean, it was only, what, two or three races removed since they'd actually clashed at the Brazilian Grand Prix, but at least they were sort of fighting for something and it was, uh, you know, a genuine um, battle that went very badly wrong for them, whereas Leclerc just completely misjudged it at the start of Styria. I don't think he, I don't think he, it was the fact that it was Vettel that particularly, you know, I don't think he was he was really trying to, you know, m- m- you know um, make a mark on that sort of situation, but he did wipe out his teammate. I think what he was doing was like at the start, sorry, Kev, just very quickly, it is a bit like what happened at the start of the Sakir Grand Prix in that he knew the car was is going was gonna to have a very difficult time in the race. He put in a fantastic qualifying performance, one run, got out of the car, he put it forth, he knew he'd done the best. Yep, job done. Then at the start, he's like, oh, I've just got to make up a little bit more and I can get something really good here. And it all went wrong for him. And I think he needs to sort of wind that back a little bit. And he did he did suggest that in the subsequent press conference at Abu Dhabi that, you know, he was just trying a little bit too hard to make up for a bit of some shortcomings. So he just needs to adjust that ever so slightly. And obviously, science needs to not do what he did at the start in Russia, where he sort of drove into the wall rather... rather uh, rather randomly so yes anyway Kev sorry what, what were you going to say I was just going to say on the Leclerc point I think you but you see that with uh, sort of superstar drivers who find their career tra- trajectory not going as they thought it was or you know when they get that first knockback so we saw it with Lewis Hamilton the first couple of years amazing in Formula 1 then he had some mediocre cars or cars that couldn't work quite as good as the Red Bull and their frustration crept in and he made a few mistakes. I think you go back further, there were times when Nate and Senna made mistakes because, you know, I'm here, I should be winning now. And when they get that knockback, they kind of have to go through the process of, yes, you need to maximise what you've got, but if you overreach all the time, you're going to be hitting cars and solid objects. So I suspect that's what, you know, Leclerc had had great first year, got his Ferrari uh, promotion, Nails Vettel in the first year, right? Here we go, ready to fight for the championship. And then it's the mental barrier, if you like, of oh, I'm not. This isn't going to be the season that I had imagined in my head, and probably for years and years dreamt about. So there probably is a is a kind of readjustment. But he's had that now. Science is used to being in a rebuilding environment because obviously that's what McLaren has been doing for the last two years. So I think it's it should be a really good a really good blend. If I can just give them a. If Ferrari can give them a half-decent car, they're not going to be beating Mercedes and Red Bull, let's be honest. But if they can get them into the midfield fight, I think Sainz and Leclerc will deliver them third in the Constructors' Championship uh, while they're focusing on their 2022 car. So it could actually be a quite a... It won't be the sort of headline uh, headline result that Tifosi wants, but I think it, that would be a quite a sensible season if they could achieve that. It definitely would be. And Luke, what was the team saying about its potential in 2021 at that team launch, which was sort of a, it was a, it was it was held at the uh, the, the Ferrari Museum at Maranello. They had a, a nice sort of um, a massive uh, screen wall where you had at various points. You had all the the journalists on the on the Zoom call, and then uh, fans as well in the, in the background for other bits that they were doing. And at one point, when I asked my question, my face and my ridiculous haircut was alarmingly looming large behind. Uh, 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 Charles Leclerc must have must have brought back memories of uh, me chasing him around the uh, Formula Two paddock in 2017. But there we go. Um, not that my head was ever that big back then. Um, but yeah, what was the team sort of suggesting about how things are going to go? I mean, everything Mattia Bonotto seemed to be saying was, "Oh, it looks better," but I'm not committing to you know saying we're going to be right back where we were in 2019. Oh uh, yeah, just uh, on that, one of the highlights of the Ferrari conference for me, uh, because I'm a child, was taking screenshots of when the journalist's massive chin would appear behind uh, Charles Leclerc during during the press conference. It was uh, yes, that, that, that tickled me. Uh, but anyway, uh, yes, uh, Ferrari. It was very. Um, it, it was, I think, cautiously optimistic is probably the best way to sum it up. They were saying that everything is sort of pointing in the right direction. Uh, Mattia Bonato said that they're confident they've recovered a large uh, amount of the deficit that they lost on the power unit last year, which was obviously the big Achilles heel. Uh, they've uh, spent their two development tokens on, on on the rear of the car to try and resolve some of the issues there. And they're saying that sort of the data and everything is is moving in a, in a good direction. So they're sort of, they're quite upbeat about things, but there's always the sort of uh, core and, and I guess the, the idea of that midfield fight was so, so close. And it's something that uh, we discussed on a podcast a couple of days ago about 
that you've got the teams from really third to seventh in last year's Constructors' Championship who could all actually probably make a, a claim on any of those positions going into this season. Um, but it is, uh, I think, the, the signs are positive. I think that we did see uh, a decent upswing from Ferrari um, sort of towards the end of last season, obviously took a, a massive dip in, in the final couple of rounds. But uh, yeah, they were sort of firmly looking like the third fastest team at, at Portimao, for example. Uh, Turkey did very, very well as well. So I think they can take good confidence from that. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with Kev. I think that really the goal for this season for them has to be, let's just get third in the championship with no fuss, uh, try and consistently deliver two cars high up in the points, leave the likes of McLaren, Aston Martin, Renault fighting behind us. And uh, yeah, then they can really sort of pull everything on 2022 because ultimately for the Tifosi, whether Ferrari is third or seventh, it's still a failure. They want to be winning. They want those championships. And it's, uh, yeah, it's coming up for, what, it'll be 15 years since the last driver's title in 2022, which is incredible. Um, so it's uh, it's all about really ending that dry spell and uh, finally getting Ferrari back on top. Yeah, it's a very, very long time now since 2007. Makes me feel very old. Well... Yeah, I was going to say, I, I was just about to leave school at that point. Look, you probably probably just starting. Um, um, it is, I mean, one of the real key things about uh, 2021 for Ferrari. And actually, to be fair, uh, Bonato says, you know, they're, they're really not going to be developing this car very much at all. It is, as you say, look, the focus really is on making sure it can kick back properly in 2022. But we do know that they've produced a new engine, obviously, since the disastrous one uh, last year. We understand that it's going to have um, a new cylinder head design and its turbine at least will be lighter. Um, uh, amongst the the changes that it's making, um, the, you know, if it can, if if for some reason it can just slot back into the same level the 2019 engine was performing at, then Ferrari automatically gets a a big boost. But it doesn't, you know, we, we, I think we can assume that that that, that will happen. It, it, it sounds like you know it's quite a, an interesting setup that they had in 2019 anyway. So you know, it, it'll be it'll be it'll be a big ask for them to have done that in a different way to get back to where it was um, but Kev what do you make of the suggestion and it is sort of it, we are we do enter the realm of speculation here I, I do mention this in in the feature but Ferrari there's a there's a sort of a non-spoken sort of suggestion that Ferrari is going to be quite considerably better on the power front because of the way it voted for the engine freeze that Red Bull was pushing for from the end of this year because if if its engine was still in a nightmare situation, why on earth would it vote to have that stay for the next three years? Because even if it produces the best chassis next year, if the engine's still terrible, you know, it, it, it's just in the same nightmare. So do you think that logically we can just assume that the Ferrari engine will be at least somewhat better this year? Uh, yeah, a couple of things there. One, yes, I think we can assume it will be better. I think that they, and also I suspect their aero package will be, you know, not, thrown quite so far to the draggy end of the you know the performance spectrum because they know that they're not going to have you know this super engine on tap so i think that both the from the aero point of view and the engine point of view they will improve they've got more scope to improve than some of the other teams in that midfield group who are still fighting to get you know gradual increments whereas for i had a particular couple of major issues that brought them back so i think that they probably will go some way to sorting those out yeah the, the the sort of about turn on the engine freeze is quite interesting i wouldn't fully go down the path that they must be totally confident because i think that we probably all know don't we that if one of the engine manufacturers was way off the others the fia would allow some reliability tinkering or whatever they want to call it to bring them up we've we've, we've seen this sort of thing before to try and uh, try and get the engines a bit back to parity but yeah the fact that it's been such a, a change of heart on it uh, means that they they must be confident one way or another that they're going to be they're going to be somewhere in the ballpark. I think indeed. And just for clarification, he did uh, you know the, uh, the the air quotes around the reliability tinkering, just in <laughs> case anybody from the FIA is uh, is listening, which I, hopefully they are, frankly. Um, but Luke, there have been other changes that, that Ferrari has made, um, sort of restructuring uh, mainly the chassis department ahead of this season. But do we think that's more about? getting things organized for 2022 rather than changing and expecting any any big differences being made there for this year because of the the carryover rules requirements yeah i think so because it's all pretty much the same people and matteo bonato said basically they wanted to just simplify things and this change only came a few months after the last sort of restructuring of all the the various technical departments at maranello and uh yeah i think it is sort of just a again sort of looking a bit 
further ahead and it's not really about 2021 it's about sort of that long-term plan and uh, I think really the main change is yeah obviously um, uh, Simone Resta he's uh, off to Haas to take up a, a senior role for this season and uh, I think it was also interesting that uh, Lauren Meckes I think he's probably going to be a lot more hands-on Matia Bonotto has said that he's not planning to attend every single Grand Prix he missed a few races towards the end of last season as sort of a, a test as to whether he could uh, run the race weekend from home okay and uh, that was all fine so he said that basically as the focus gets more and more towards 2022 towards the end of this year he'll probably miss the races uh, Meckes will be on on the ground basically for Ferrari uh, overseeing things there so uh, which I think is a very good thing I think Lauren Mekis he's is a, an excellent operator so no issues there but uh yeah i think for it is everything is sort of just looking long term now they're not really they're not banking anything on this year and i think that's actually it's going to be quite nice to see uh maybe a bit of a liberated ferrari in one way they're, they're kind of like well things can't get any worse than it was last season so how, how can we do now and uh, i'm gonna be quite interested to see how that maybe uh, changes the atmosphere because it was understandably a bit all doom and gloom and everything was bad news last season but i think this year it'll be okay so well, you got a podium this week great work guys well done and it's uh yeah it'd be nice to see how a bit a bit of levity what that does for everybody at Maranello maybe definitely definitely um well guys just before we we, we chat about some of the other topics we want to on on this podcast and um, one of them is a bit more sort of long-term thinking that Ferrari's committed to um Kev are you sticking with and basically I'm going to ask you both where you think Ferrari will end up in the constructors championship this year and then I'll, I'll suggest where I think they're going to come Kev are you sticking with you think they can get back to third yeah third Luke yeah, no, I'm going to agree, actually. I think I think it's going to be really close, but I think they're just going to pip McLaren to third place. Okay, well, I'm going to, I think they'll be fourth, and it'll be Aston Martin that's third. Ooh, interesting. Just, we know Ooh, how good that car was. Tr- yeah, but, but the driver line-up isn't there, uh, is it? I mean, this is for our next podcast, isn't it? <laughs> but, uh, yep, they, they, but, you know, we've seen a change revitalised Vettel. Anyway, as you say, we'll get to that next week. We'll get to that next week. Um, well, let's uh, let, let's go to the uh, the other big news that Ferrari announced last week before it introduced its Formula One team to the world for this year. And that is the news that Ferrari will be going back to Le Mans. Uh, it's from 2023 with a Le Mans hypercar programme in the top tier of the World Endurance Championship. Um, Kev, I mean, as I was saying that, uh, you were celebrating with your arms raised in the air. You, I know we had, a, we had a meeting with our, uh, our podcast producer, Martin, earlier, and you were, you were, you were oh, lighting up about how um, how good you think sports car racing is going to be in, in the coming years with all these big names coming back to uh, to the WEC. Um, but yeah, Ferrari, what, what do you make of Ferrari coming back and, and doing something that was very, very successful at many generations ago? Oh, I'm so happy. I mean, I, as a kid, I, would, I, I read a lot of uh, old auto sports and books and videos and stuff. Um, and, you know, Ferrari was, yeah, well, first of all, it, it forged a lot of its reputation at Le Mans. And for a long time, even into the 60s, Le Mans programme, winning Le Mans in June was a priority over the... We'll get the F1 car sorted after that, which actually drove John Surtees, understandably, to distraction at times. Um, so that's how important it was because, you know, it pro- proved proved your product and it could help them sell, well, GT cars, road cars, which funded the F1 and sports car programme. So it was this kind of virtuous circle. Um, so, you know, Ferrari... Le Mans is really important to the history of Ferrari and Ferrari is really important to the history of Le Mans. And... An, uh, I feel like since I've known what Le Mans is, I've been waiting for this news. Uh, and they've kind of teased us a few times. Oh, yeah, we're looking at it. We might do something. And obviously, they had a very successful GT program, to be to be fair. But they should be in there fighting for outright wins. I find it remarkable that when they go back, it will be half a century since their last fully factory effort in the in the top class. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I think the fact that there are loads of other manufacturers, you know, Porsche... Audi, Peugeot, Toyota, obviously continuing. Um, yeah, other a lot of the IMSA-based teams and marks are looking at it as well. I think um, uh, normally, if you get two or three manufacturers in the top class in sports car racing, you think this is a, this is a good era. If you've got five, six, seven, it's going to be it's going to be amazing. Um, yeah, as you say, Kev, all those big names. I think um, it'll be very hard for Ferrari to go up against the Porsche and Audi. Um, obviously, the Toyotas will start breaking down again once they've got some opposition. Um, but we'll see how. We'll see how <laughs> oh, damning! Yeah, that was, that was a bit harsh, really. But you know, they haven't been in opposition for the last few years, and it's been fine. Um, Luke, what I found really, really interesting and a little bit confusing actually was something that Bonotto said during the team launch about the WEC program in that he was asked, was it a result of the F1 cost cap rule coming in, you know, assigning resources elsewhere, 
making sure you're not um, laying off staff because that's that's basically what Mercedes has been very open about saying. You know, it's 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 it's, it's created this applied science division. It's got its Formula E team because Toto Wolff doesn't want to sack his employees, and I think that's that's pretty that's a pretty um, open way of doing it. But Bonotto said no, it wasn't a result of that. It was just something that the, Ferrari, the team have been evaluating for a long time. So, what do you think that was all about? I'm surprised his nose wasn't growing as he said that, frankly, because, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's ridiculous to suggest that it wasn't. And I'm not saying that it's a direct consequence that they are only entering hypercar because of the budget cap. It's simple math, isn't it? That if you're spending 300 million a year, say, and then you've got to almost half that coming into this year that you've got all this other money that you would be spending so it's it's freed up what else could you do and uh, also all the staff as well like where are you going to redeploy them as you said mercedes doing that with their applied science red bull have got their applied technologies now the powertrain program as well and uh, ferrari we know they were looking at indycar for example perhaps becoming an engine supplier in that series before deciding against it and the noises were that was a direct consequence of the budget cap that they were thinking well we need to sort of look at what we're doing uh yeah so i was, I was very surprised when when he said that and that that's going to be the company line that oh no no we're fully committed to, to hypercar and and uh, and everything like that because i don't think any of the manufacturers going into hypercar no one's judging what they're doing and saying oh well you're spending a lot of money here or anything like that because it again the category is being formed with sustainability in mind that it's not going to meet the same fate that lmp1 has because it just got too expensive it was crazy amounts being f1 budget levels of spending it was it was about um it's 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 about making something more sustainable. So I don't think anyone would have sort of thought twice if Bonasso had been like, oh no, it was because of the budget cap. But um, anyway, I think it's it's good that Ferrari are committed. I think that we're not going to question that. I think it's it's wonderful news that they're back. Um, I, I, I've only just clocked that I've had a Le Mans post that I got for my birthday last year, and it's been the back in the back of pretty much every Zoom call I've been on. And it's only actually just clocked to me that that was only, what, four years before? It's from 1961. Obviously, people listening to this can't see it. Um, but only four years before their last and most recent outright Le Mans victory is it's really incredible so yeah i think it's just great news and i'm i'm so excited for what the future of sports car racing is i'm really excited if we could see charles leclerc maybe race for ferrari at le mans he said that he'd he'd be up for that and uh yeah i've, I've already said to one of our sports car writers that if if i could be uh the uh dodgy silver in autosports le mans a reporting lineup for le mans in 2023 then uh i'd be well up for that i'm also up for that as a long held thing that <laughs> We could have an F1 roaster. In, in I'd it. love to go to Le Mans and help out. Anyway, Kev, sorry. Uh, uh- and I was just saying, I agree with everything that Luke said about, except for the dodgy silver part at the end, because nobody, nobody thinks of you like that, Luke. Um, but I, ju- I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to read out Gary Watkins, our sports car guru, who has been covering Le Mans for a very long time and also waiting for Ferrari's return. He he does. Uh, he's written a really good column in the magazine. Uh, the, the same the same Ferrari special uh, as the F1 stuff and, and he outlines how this has come to be and he he, he basically agrees with us as well without being quite so uh, uh, strident with it but he said it can be no coincidence that the last time Ferrari was evaluating a step up to the top class came in 2013 when cost restrictions were on the table for F1 in 2015 so uh, the, whatever they say there's got to be a relationship there hasn't there and for the sake of the WEC programme I think it, they want some F1 people involved you know you're gonna if you're going up against audi and porsche obviously audi has dominated le mans for most of this century and the bit that they didn't was when porsche decided we quite fancy coming back and re-emphasizing underlining our strength at this like you can't just expect to swan in and and beat that opposition i think that's quite a tough gig so they need to any f1 resource that does need to be cut away from that because the budget cap needs to be thrown in that direction i would suggest well, we know uh, Binotto won't be heading up uh, that program. Obviously, he'll be fully focused on the F1 team. He, he said that during the, the launch event. Um, also, just it's just worth uh, everybody, if, you, if you've got a copy of Autospot magazine, do check out the column that uh, Roddy Basso has uh, has written. Uh, Roddy, obviously, uh, Rubens Barrichello's race engineer during the uh, the early 2000s when Ferrari were winning everything. And he sort of just explains how that team was so successful and maybe Ferrari needs to think about the, the team changes, how it can get back to being... Uh, as successful as successful as it was and obviously he's uh, very well placed to comment on that considering what he saw and how much uh, that team achieved and um, but kev just very quickly before we come on to uh, discuss um the greatest ferrari f1 cars in your opinion um i put a hypothetical scenario in front of you it's 2023 ferrari has turned up with an amazing engine an amazing chassis in 2022 charles Leclerc has won his first f1 world title 
he's going into a new season to defend his title. Um, but obviously, there's a there's a brand new ride going to Le Mans, and he could end up winning the Triple Crown because he's won his home race at Monaco. He's put the uh, he's put the curse uh, that seems to unfortunately be over him on his home turf um, behind him by winning the 2022 Monaco Grand Prix. Could you see him? Could you see him uh, uh, doing dual programs in 2023, or maybe just a one-off at Le Mans if he's fighting for a world title? Well, he's quite positive about it, wasn't he? He didn't. Uh, he seemed a bit more enthusiastic about the Le Mans idea than Carlos science was which given these dads uh, versatility i thought was a little bit surprising actually but um uh i think i i'd love to say yes but i think probably we're at the point now where you're only going to get f sort of active f1 drivers doing things like that if their main program isn't going terribly well so fernando alonso could go off and do the indy file or whatever because he was in there was absolutely no way he was going to be in a world championship fight I think if you're in the middle of a, let's say you're, you know, Leclerc is, has won a won a championship in 2022, and Hamilton's hung around to go right. I, this, finally, right, I'm going to have someone I can wheel to wheel with, and he and him and Mercedes strike back in 2023. I can't see Leclerc going. I'm just going to take time out to go and do 24 hour race because actually you're there for a week anyway. You know, in normal circumstances, which we all hope that we'll, we'll certainly be at that point by then. Um, so yeah, as much as I, I would love the idea of him going and doing, it. I think that'd be really cool. And I think he actually quite likes it too. But if you're in the middle of a world championship title fight, you're, you're probably not going to. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's uh, pretty pretty sensible, pretty straightforward. Um, but Kev, yeah, let's come on to uh, chat about what you think are Ferrari's top 10 Formula 1 cars. Obviously, we did this when we recorded the uh, accompaniment podcast for our Williams cover feature for McLaren as well. Um, so again, Kev, I'm just going to we'll run you down the list. Um, we'll see at the end whether Luke has any uh, objections to any of the places that, that you've put. And um, I'm going to comment on, on the number one car because I know what it is and I really like it. Um, but yeah, number 10, we've got the Ferrari 375. Why is that at number 10, Kev? Well, it was this or the 641, which is probably my favourite Formula 1 Ferrari. So I didn't get my favourite F1 Ferrari into my top 10, which I don't know if that's clever or stupid. You've got mine in there, so that's fine. Oh, okay, fine. Well, that's obviously what I'm motivated by when I'm doing these lists. (laughs) So, yeah, so they both... And uh, they were both competitive. Uh, they were both quite important cars uh, for Ferrari, but and both ultimately missed out on winning a world championship. The three seven five gets it um, really because of its importance as the first Ferrari to win a world championship Grand Prix. Um, Jose Froelang Gonzalez won the nineteen fifty one British Grand Prix, which ended five years of domination. When I say domination, I literally mean they didn't lose a race. So anyone thinks the Mercedes domination has been bought, imagine that, five years of not being beaten in a race of Alfa Romeo. And Ferrari should really have won the Drivers' Championship with Alberto Ascari, but they made a daft decision about wheels at the finale and handed the title to Fangio Alfa Romeo. Um, But the car was phenomenal. And in a way, you could blame it on the switch to Formula 2 because the 375 saw off the Alfa. BRM was still a shambles. Nobody else had a a proper Formula 1 car. So... uh, so they changed the rules to the World Championship for two years to F2 so that there'd be more people involved. I mean, the results, I suspect, were basically the same because Ferrari had a different car that they used, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but yeah, I thought I, it, it pipped the 641 because of its historical importance. Okay, at number nine, we've got the Ferrari 126C2 uh, slash the 126C2B. Um, t- two constructors' titles, 1982, followed up in 1983 and five victories. Why is that at number nine? Um, well, it's the first turbo car to win an F1 title. Um, so it's, it's you know, the 1982 Constructors' Championship, and um, they would have probably won the Drivers' Championship. They were very unfortunate. Obviously, they had Gilles Villeneuve killed um, in practice uh, for the Belgian Grand Prix, and Didier Peroni, who would have won the Drivers' Championship, had his horrible accident in practice at Hockenheim. Um but it won the constructors' title. You know, Renault had brought the turbocharging in five years before and still not made it reliable enough to win a title. Quite remarkable, really. Uh, Ferrari did that in only their second year with the turbo car, and then by 1983, other teams were getting their act together. Brabham BMW, um, Renault. The Renault car was pretty pretty decent at least at the start of the year in '83, and and Ferrari won the won the constructors' title again. So, um, you know, a title a title double for them, even though it didn't win the drivers' crown. At number eight, we've got the Ferrari 246 Dino. Five wins, the driver's title for Mike Cawthorn in 1958. Why is that at number eight? It's probably a bit of a romantic choice, this one, isn't it, if I'm honest? Uh, probably wasn't as quick as the Van Wall that Sterling Moss should have won the 1958 World Championship in, but I, I won't rant about that at this point. 
Um, sorry, Mark Hawthorne fans. Um, but it, it kind of it was another Ferrari recovery job. They they'd spent two years engineering the D50 into an uncompetitive car. Um, so by '57, they'd managed to not win a single world championship race. The the 246 Dino was the sort of the new car. Um, was one of the fastest of the season. Still competitive in '59. Tony Brooks could have won the championship there. And thanks to the British teams boycotting the 1960 Italian Grand Prix uh, on the Monza banking, it's the last front-engined Grand Prix car to win a world championship race. Um, also, I think it looks quite mega. So, wins the inaugural Constructors' Championship and historical significance again. So, that's why it's in there. Absolutely. Well, at number seven, we've got the car you were referring to earlier, the Ferrari 500. Took 14 wins, the two drivers' titles with Alberto Ascari in 1952 and 1953. So, yeah, why is that seven? Why is that not higher, maybe? Well, I was going to say this statistically, you could push this higher, couldn't you? I mean, over two years it, uh, in the World Championship, it was only beaten once, and that was thanks to a combination of a bit of drama on the last lap at Monza and a bit of fan, uh, inspired Fangio moment. He was very good at avoiding accidents, Fangio. Um, and uh, yeah, so Maserati won that race. But otherwise, Fry had a clean sweep, if you exclude the Indy 500. Um, but they really didn't have much opposition. The, the performance margins in the 50s were enormous. Uh, and particularly so during that Formula 2 era. They re- it really was pretty massive until Maserati kind of vaguely got its act together. So it, it, Ferrari didn't really have much opposition, which is why it's it's only down in seventh. Um, I wouldn't say it's a particularly revolutionary car, relatively straightforward car, but it was just much better package than anything else anyone had come up with for those Formula 2 regulations. And on those Formula 2 regulations, should that not have disqualified that car from this list? On the basis that the Formula 2 races are included in all World Championship records, uh, no. Um, but that's why I tried to be very... Because I actually originally did this list to celebrate Fry's 1,000th World Championship start. And we were very careful at all to, to only use that phrase because it wasn't the 1,000th F1 start because that would include a load of non-championship races. Uh, and it had to be it had to be world championship, not world championship F one races, because that would exclude its Indy five hundred start and its F two season. So it's uh, it's those those races are counted in by Ferrari in their thousand. So I think that uh, it was fair enough to follow that uh, follow that lead. Yep, yeah, that's fair enough. And obviously, everybody, uh, you can go to autosport.com and uh, check out Kev's list in full. Uh, obviously, we're going through it now, but you can read everything he's written, basically. Uh, number six, you've got the Ferrari F2007. Nine victories and Kimi Raikkonen's driver's title. Obviously, it's the constructor's title uh, as well it took that year. Why is that at number six? Yeah, I, this one I might sort of get Luke's opinion on, or, or, or yourself, Alex, because it, it could have been the F2007 or the 2008. So the 2007 did win a title double, but it only really won the Constructors' Championship because McLaren was was booted out because of Spygate and all the rest of it. Uh, and the 2008 car didn't win the Drivers' Championship, but did win the Constructors' Championship. So it was a bit... Uh, um, but on the... I, I mean, I did put the 2007 McLaren on the McLaren list. So to have beaten it to the Drivers' Championship with Kimi Raikkonen, I guess the F2007, perhaps it's fair enough that it gets the nod... I would suggest a Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso lineup is stronger than a Felipe Massa, Kimi Raikkonen one. So the car must have been pretty, pretty handy. Uh, they, the, the, it was a, one of the closest uh, F1 title fights, 2007, both in terms of points and actual performance. Um, so to come out on top, you know, fair, fair play to Ferrari, really. And of course, they'd done it after they'd lost a lot of the people that had been part of the Schumacher era. So this showed that the next sort of generation of Ferrari engineers and personnel could still get get the job done. They're only really derailed by the rule change for 2009. Yeah, Luke, what do you think? Do you think that um, the 2007 car deserves its place over the 2008 car? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that it's a very close-run thing between the two of them, but I think that the 07 was probably probably more dominant, I guess, that and the McLaren, like... The, Ferrari and McLaren just swept the season basically there wasn't there wasn't I don't not sure if any other team did win a race that year uh, whereas in 08 I think it was a much more it was a much more open season we saw that BMW were very strong we saw that Renault was strong towards the end of the year um, so I yeah I think that this this Ferrari I think it's just a bit more yeah, when I think back to that era of Ferrari this is the one that really I think stands out for me and as you say Kev it was off the back of the, the end of the Schumacher era Kimi Raikkonen coming in so much change going on so I think it's to deliver uh, two titles one very much with an asterisk but I think uh, yeah I think it was a really impressive display by Ferrari so I, I would agree I think this is probably more deserving of a place on the list 
absolutely. Well, at number five, we've got the Ferrari 156, the Shark Nose car. It took five wins, a driver's title for Phil Hill in 1961 and the Constructors' Championship that year. Why is that at number five, Kev? Well, first of all, it's an iconic shape, isn't it? It's really distinctive for um, that era of car, which, cars, which actually all look quite similar. They're effectively cigar-shaped with wheels, but the, you can tell the Ferrari, in, like, even if it wasn't red, which, of course, it did race in yellow as well, but um, uh, you can tell what it is. But also, uh, it's it's... It was so dominant, you know. They they got yeah. You know, while the British teams moaned about the regulation changes, which Ferrari hadn't initially supported, it's widely thought that Ferrari you know put the pressure on to push the fifteen hundred cc regulations through. But if you if you read the the coverage of what was going on at the time, um, Ferrari suggested other things like a you know, two liter category, I believe, um, and it was really the German side, the Porsche arm, if you like, that was pushing for for that because they thought they were well placed. Um, so it, yeah, it, it wasn't quite as much of a sort of conspiracy as some of the British teams uh, or some of the British history has suggested subsequently. So yeah, while the British teams moaned and argued about um, whether it should, was the right rules, Porsche and Ferrari developed cars in Formula Two ready for '61 for when it became Formula One regs, and um, and the Ferrari was by far the best car. They were probably a bit fortunate that none of the British teams had proper engines in place. Um, so they were far enough ahead that only Sterling Moss could could beat the Shark Nose a couple of times, uh, but otherwise, you know, it was they were. I think at Spa they were six point seven seconds clear of the best non Ferrari. Which, yeah, is in, I mean, if you had that now, you'd think, well, it's got to be a wet session or something's gone wrong there. So um, yeah, it was a sh- sheer dominance really. It was quickly overturned in sixty two, which is why it couldn't really go any further than fifth. I didn't think. Well, and number four, we've got the Ferrari F one two thousand. Obviously, very very famous car in Ferrari's history because it's the it's the car that finally Michael Schumacher gets his title, first title with at Ferrari. Took ten wins, uh, and obviously the drivers' title, as I said, and the constructors' championship as well. So why is that a number four, Kev? Well, we could I could have put pretty much all of the Ferraris from about 99 to 2004 in, but that would have made it a very boring list. Um, so I had to kind of try and think of particular reasons that, that would elevate some above the others. And although the the, the 99 car obviously won the Constructors' Championship, uh, partly that was due to just ridiculousness at McLaren, but also the championship that everyone cared about, I th- I would say including Ferrari, if we're honest, was ending that weight in the drivers championship which at that point was 21 years so they're not a million miles away from that are they um yeah and uh and that's the car that did it you know they finally gave mark schumacher a car quick enough to fight me hackenen and mclaren uh and he didn't break his leg and um and, and he got he got the job done and he picked he picked his japanese grand prix that clinched that title as the race of the race of his life and um, yeah, that was the car that made it happen. So I thought it was it had to be high up, really. Um, yeah, you can imagine the next Ferrari that wins a drivers' championship is going to be, yeah, that's going to be a pretty major car for the list as well. Certainly will be if it gets there. Let's face it. Uh, number three, we've got the Ferrari F two thousand and two, one of the two most dominant cars Ferrari uh, has ever produced, and obviously the the fantastic uh, run it had at the start of, uh, of this millennium. Took fifteen wins, drivers' title for Michael Schumacher in two thousand and two, and of course the constructors' championship that year. So why is that number three, Kev? Yeah, well, any one of these top three cars uh, could have probably topped the list or you could make a case for it and would be in a debate about the greatest Grand Prix car, which we've done a couple of times. Um, yeah, the F2000, I mean, so so dominant um, uh, to the point where they could, you know, um, Mark Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello could have problems in races and still just storm through the field on just pure pace. But it wasn't quite as dominant in, in qualifying as, as one of the other cars on this list, and it wasn't as long-lived as the other car on this list. So it, it kind of fell into a fairly solid third place um, uh, as, the, as I would argue, the second-best Ferrari of the Ross Braun, Marcus Schumacher era. Well, as you say, um, we, we're coming to the top two now, so we're going to do what we what we did in the previous uh, podcast. We'll reveal the two together, and then you can explain why you've had, got them in that order, Kev. Um, at number one it is the F2004, which is, as I said, as I hinted at earlier, my favourite ever Formula 1 car. And at number two, it's the Ferrari 312T slash 312T2. So why have you got them that way around, Kev? Why is the F2004 edge ahead? Well, there are certain similarities between the two. That I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that... that Ferrari's two most successful eras have been when they've had a, a, a Germanic character as the sort of the lead driver and that Luca de Montezemolo has been involved as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, so the the 312T, so 75 to 77, 
uh, obviously dominated 75, would have won the 76 drivers title uh, had it not been for Nicola Alder's accident and did win the Constructors' Championship. And then in 77, really, they shouldn't have won. They were only the fourth fastest car combination. Um, but uh, the, the cars ahead of them that were quicker, in particular Lotus, kept having engine problems and silly things happen. So Ferrari and Lauda ground out a title. Whether you think that's a positive or a minus is, is I guess, open to interpretation. Um, so, yeah, an absolutely fantastic car. And the reason I didn't extend it beyond that is there was a new monocoque with the T3. The T3 was quite a different car. So although it sounds as part of the series, I think it's a, I think it is a, a new car. But yeah, 2004. I mean, it it it, it destroyed the lap records. It mo- almost everywhere it went, and they've only now just recently been broken by the the, the latest generation of cars. Uh, I suspect probably that it, um, even the, because of the shortened season last year. I suspect I haven't checked that even the W11 Mert doesn't have as many lap records as the F2004 had in that from that season for a long time. Um, Fifteen wins from eighteen races. Um, yeah, there were there were a couple of times at, at, at proper tracks like Spa and Suzuka where Marcus Schumacher just completely let rip and it was um, yeah just, just completely destroyed the field. Um, it's a great looking car. The only thing that would make it better is if it had proper slick tyres instead of those silly grooves. Uh, great sound of V10. Um, it's compet- you know, it was a it was a tough era. Yeah, you know, they were a long way into that rule set as well. Remember. Um, so again, the same argument we had for the W11 Mercedes. You know, other people should have been closer by then, and it was so good that Ferrari thought they'd done something wrong in testing. It was quicker than their predictions, and they actually went back to base and went, "Did we run it light by accident? Did we do something wrong?" Uh, they were genuinely questioning their own their own sanity, really, because it was that good. Think of a team as surprised how good its car is. That's that's pretty impressive. It certainly is. It certainly is. Yeah, I think you're right. That's that's that sums up why I why I love it. I think just 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 looks amazing, doesn't it? And then you see how how fast it was and and how that's held up for so long. And um, yeah, Luke, do you have any uh, do you have any disagreements in terms of uh, the order of Kev's list or any cars that should have been considered otherwise? No, I think it's pretty much all in order. I think especially the top two, I'm uh, yeah massively on board with. I mean, three one CT, I think is is such a special car for that era of F1. And um, I remember when I was a I was a kid, and um, my mum uh, told me stories about when she used to go to the British Grand Prix and watch uh, Gilles Villeneuve. And I know he he raced the the T three and the T four, so it was a little bit later on, and obviously a different spec uh, of that car, but sort of still similar routes and stuff. So it's uh, yeah, I, I think it's a really special car for the era. I think the F two thousand and four i think that is the again of that era i think that's as perfect to a formula one car as you can get and i think it is only as as kev said sort of in the past year or two when mercedes have produced uh, cars such as w11 that it's got even close to being overhauled um one one question i do have for kev though um is that uh, you said that the car that ends the wait for a driver's title that's obviously going to be a contender for whenever this list may be revised in the future but i i was thinking what about the 2018 Ferrari? And I know this was a massive, massive asterisk given what we know now about the engine settlement and sort of the question marks there and obviously how that season did ultimately unravel. But you can maybe say that's more down to the drivers as opposed to the team. But for me, the 2018 Ferrari, that's as good as Ferrari have got in recent times. It brought the best out of even uh, an ageing Kimi Raikkonen, who most have written off and said was past it. He won a Grand Prix. Sebastian Vettel was fantastic in it, particularly in the early part of that season. So where where did did that ever come into the considerations when you were putting together this list as well? Um, not, I mean, I would agree that it was the, it's the best car of the recent, definitely post post two thousand and eight. It's the best Ferrari uh, that they've done, and I, I would go so far as to say, if you had a twenty twelve spec Fernando Alonso having driven that car in twenty eighteen, I I think he would have at very least taken the championship fight with Lewis down to the finale, whether he'd have won it. I mean, Ferrari started that season ahead of the. Um, I, we have a we have a resident Ferrari fan in the office who keeps pointing out that the Mercedes was quicker that year. But actually, the first half of the season, the Ferrari was technically ahead, and Lewis managed to get the lead of the championship anyway by dint of things like not falling off at Hockenheim, nailing a Hungary pole in the wet when it looked like Ferrari was going to win that weekend, and really making the making the dip. Monza, I think, was you know the Italian Grand Prix that year. I think was one of Hamilton's greatest drives. Um, so I really do think the driver made the difference, which I guess backs up your point that the Ferrari should have been in the the, the 2018 car should have been in the in the mix. Um, 
so I'd, I'd I'd probably put it up there with the six four one as the kind of the the kind of the greatest sort of non championship winners that didn't quite make the list, if you like. Uh, I guess if, if you were to suggest that the three seven fives, um, uh, if you if you moved it down because how significant is the first win, and that doesn't affect how does it affect how great a car is? It was in my opinion, but if you took that out of it, then you could make a strong case for the six four one or the uh, or the twenty eighteen car. But in that case, I'll put the six four one in because yeah. I think on the cool <laughs> on the cool factor, the nineteen ninety car. That's just to me. That's what a that's what a Formula One car should look like. Plus, it it, it starred in my favorite my favorite Formula One race of all time, the nineteen ninety Mexican Grand Prix. So, I've um, I'm arguing my three seven five out of the list, but not for the twenty eighteen car. Now, is what happened? What's happened there? Okay, well, I just want to know is our is our resident Ferrari fan, uh, our designer Michael, who's done such an excellent job of the uh, the cover and the uh, and the feature in this week's magazine. It is, it is, yes. Every now and again, we have a bit of, especially obviously in the in back in the old days when you could go into an office and all work together, there would invariably be some Monday banter. And obviously, for the last few years, he's been on the receiving end of quite a lot of banter. So yeah, that's probably a bit probably a bit harsh, isn't it? Because um, I mean, actually, the thing that he forgets is that we all want to, Ferrari to do well. We at the moment there are only two teams with the potential to take on Mercedes, Ferrari, and yeah, it's Ferrari and Red Bull. We need them up there. Um, you know, I like to put things on the cover other than uh, a black Mercedes for twenty weekends in a, in a year, twenty issues in a year. You know, a bit of a bit of uh, a bit of mix of red and blue, and well, even uh, even white with the old uh, Pierre Gasly win last year was pretty successful. So, um, yeah, m- the more the merrier in the winners' circle, I reckon. I know that Michael still gets uh, or does get annoyed if I don't rate the Ferrari drivers high enough, but that 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 uh, that gets communicated to you and not to me, which is excellent. Oh, that's yes, very enjoyable. Yes, <laughs> yeah. You always overrate the Merc drivers and underrate the Ferrari drivers, which you know, I think I think says more about where he's coming from as a Ferrari fan. Well, you can't you can't please everyone. That's what I'm trying to remind myself. Um, anyway, guys, I think that's uh, that's where we should leave things for this podcast. So, thank you very much uh, for coming on and joining me in this recording today. And of course, thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in news agents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis, and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, gut check. If your six-pack abs are covered with flab, it's time to cut the fat. Lose weight the easy way with Nutrisystem for Men. Now delivering hearty inspirations meals that fill you up without letting you down. We're talking bigger lunches and bigger dinners packed with protein to control hunger for up to five hours. From savory bourbon chicken to mouth-watering meatloaf, they're exactly what a man's body needs to power through the day. You get breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks all fully prepared, totally delicious 
and delivered free to your door. No salads, no juices, just real food for serious appetites. Order today and get all new fuel shakes for men. They're made with the key ingredient Velocitol that doubles the power of protein to help you maintain muscle mass while losing weight and feeling satisfied. Don't wait any longer. Order now for a simple way to lose weight, build strength, boost energy, and burn fat. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash protein to lock in your special deal. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network.